This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead, so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEF. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. The hormones are high, the neon is bright. Let's jump in the car and take a drive. If anyone asks, you're listening to Mud on Film. But between you and me... This is Zach on film talking American graffiti. A long, you should have done it in the Wolfman Jack voice. Yeah, yeah. No, that would have been, been bad. So, American Graffiti, a 1973 coming of age film. Uh, three yeah. high school friends plus somebody who's been around a little bit. He's yeah. kind of like the all right. He was all, kind of like all right, all right, all right, all right. That's what he played. That, that's right, what he plays right, in the. Right. Uh, <laughs> Four friends. This is they the last night that they're supposed to be together. And I say the same age. Yes, they do. Where two of them are supposed to go off to college in the morning. Right. And this is kind of their last night together. And so what are they going to do? They're going to go break up with their girlfriends. They're going to go cruising in cars. Join a gang. Join a gang. Try to find hot women in a T-Bird. And uh, just have a general night uh, in the city of Modesto, California, set against music of the 1950s and 60s playing throughout. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful film. It was quite enjoyable. What most people don't realize, maybe they do, <laughs> is that this is George Lucas. Yeah. George Lucas wrote, George Lucas directed, George Lucas produced, George Lucas had a fit over Final Cut. <laughs> There's the Coppola produced this. Yes, thing? Francis Ford Coppola. So, so here's crazy. the here's the story of uh, of uh, American Graffiti, and I think there's a really important lesson that can that you can learn from this. Side. All right. So George Lucas had just finished THX 1138, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've ever seen THX 1138 I'm with not. Robert Duvall. I think it's Robert Duvall's in that. I've seen stills. But it is a wacko, crazy, make-no-sense, futuristic movie <laughs> that is you know, supposed to be avant-garde. You can tell that there's a lot of influence from the French New Wave uh, kind of infiltrating this and storytelling, and it's, and it's a very, very different film. 
And of course, we talked when we were doing um, Apocalypse Now mm-hmm. that one of the projects that George Lucas was considering doing after THX 1138 was Apocalypse Now, but he shelved it. He didn't think he was right for it. And certainly Francis Ford Coppola uh, wanted a crack at it. Sure. And um, Lucas just didn't couldn't get anything going. And Coppola told him, look. THX 1138, maybe not your best movie. (laughs) Maybe what you need to do, Mm -hmm. and he kind of challenged him, maybe what you need to do is write about something that you know, something that you have a lot of passion about, something from your, maybe from your childhood, something like that, something that you can use to kickstart and get this idea off the ground. And apparently at one point, George Lucas was a was a big motorhead, was a gearhead and loved to monkey around with cars and race cars and do those kinds of things. And he remembered growing up in Modesto that one of the big things that you did on a Friday night was go cruising up and down, up and down the roads and have all sorts of adventures. So he teamed up with um, two other writers. Um, I don't have them here in front of me. I want to say Hawk and somebody else. Hoyak and um, damn it, I forget who the other person was. Um, I'll look it up. Yeah, you look it up. You're supposed to know all these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so they went to work on this, and he was, uh, they kind of got a rough outline of of the story. And, Lucas had won an award in Europe and he was planning on on tooling around Europe for about five weeks. So he hired this other guy. He got a $10,000 advance to to write the script and he hired somebody else to write the script. And he came back five weeks later and the script was just basically porkies. You know, it was a teenage sex comedy, (laughs) raunchy kind of stuff going on. And Mm -hmm. today that would be your porkies. It would be, oh, there's probably another one. Um, um, Porkies would be 30 years ago, by the way. Right. Today they don't make these kind of movies. Anymore. Gloria Katz and, and Willard Hook Hoyek Hook is are, are the Hoyek. writers. Hoyek. So he came back and this guy that he had hired just didn't do a very good job. Mm-hmm. He still paid the guy ten thousand dollars, basically all the money that he was advanced. He gave to this guy and was like, "Okay, Jeez. we're done. I'm going to fire you. I'm going to have to work on this myself." So he worked with the other two writers and they finally cobbled together this story that is a very personal story for George Lucas. Not only is it talking about things that he knew about growing up in Modesto and and the cruising scene and all of that stuff. But uh, three of the characters, um, the Richard Dreyfuss character, uh, Lucas compares that to him when he was in college, when he was at USC. Then you've got Toad, um, who's the geek. And Lucas compares that to himself when he was a freshman in in high school and just had a terrible luck with the ladies. Mm -hmm. And then um, what's the gearhead guy's name? Bob? No, that's... uh, John, John, John is who he compares himself to when he's this um, junior senior in in, uh, high school and monkeying around and wrenching around with cars. And so there's a lot of George Lucas in this movie. And at one point they wanted to make this an East Coast coming of age film set in New York or Boston. And Lucas is like, no, this is that's a different culture. This movie is all about kids in the West, California kids Mm -hmm. and things that they do. So throughout your your sex comedy, throw out your screwball antics, all this stuff. This is stuff that maybe it's not all based on events from Lucas's life, but certainly things that he he remembers. And I think that if you get nothing else from this film, you look at the um, the movie like American Graffiti, which is, I think, listed like in the top 70 films of all time. It's a very personal film. It's a movie that he wrote, that he put a lot of himself into because he drew upon his own memories and his own experiences. 
And if you look at Kevin Smith, he's done the same thing with clerks Mm -hmm. where write what you have access to, write what you know. So he does clerks because he has access to a video store and he has access to the convenience store. And those are things that he knows and things that he's dealt with. And so he can shape the movie around these things. And I think for someone like you, Zach, I think that's what you need to do. What are my experiences? How can those influence a work that I might be working on in the future? Now, granted, a whole movie about Castle Rock is probably going to be rather boring. <laughs> hey, crazy stuff happens at Castle Rock. Um, it depends on what you do. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> yeah, it all depends yeah. on what you're going to do with it. You're right. Sure. But if you're sitting there and people who are listening at home are sitting there and going, oh, well, my life hasn't, hasn't been that great. Well, maybe you need to have some life experiences. Maybe you need to go out and do something so that you have an experience to draw upon that you can use. And what I've... <laughs> So that's, I think, the kind of the kind of the, the little bit of the background on the story. At one point, because no one would make this film, Francis Ford Coppola came in and said, I will co-produce this uh, picture. Mm-hmm. And because he had just finished The Godfather, studios started paying attention because they were like, oh, we can market this as from the guy who yeah. brought you The Godfather. <laughs> and that's kind of how they were marketing. So um, Coppola, even though he was kind of seen as kind of a, even though he was older than Lucas and Spielberg and these other guys, they kind of really looked up to him and he really kind of helped these younger filmmakers out Mm -hmm. uh, in getting off the ground and doing some big things. And I don't think without Coppola, I don't think we would have had American graffiti. And if without American graffiti, we most certainly would not have had star Wars. So that's how Coppola ties in to all of this. There's actually another part of the story um, at the end that we can talk about, which is a, you know, where, I don't know. Where do you want to go next, Zach? What questions do you have or thoughts that you have about this that, that we can um, we can tap into? I mean, this uh, was a, you talking about story and stuff. Anything you want to talk anything about? we want to talk about. So what really struck me about American Graffiti as I was watching it was how influential it seemed on teenage stories in the years past. Because I see Toad, I, I right, see Toad. Right. Toad, Toad stands at the liquor store, and he needs to get alcohol mm-hmm. uh, to to impress this lady. And that whole scene to me is just just screamed. And Toad in general just screamed, uh, super bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, what's his face, McLovin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can that see totally, that. Totally, yeah. <laughs> totally. That, that whole scene, yeah. it just felt like oh, kid that can has no really means of getting alcohol, needs to get it to impress people. And he's doing weird things. And so Toad really felt, felt like McLovin to me. Yeah. No, and, you, I can see a lot of the yeah. influence. Yeah. That, uh, that movie is very clearly influenced by this one. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was uh, a, a thing that I noticed. I was like, I mean, that's, thing, that's something we've touched on a lot on Zach on film is let's look at these films of decades past and see how technique wise they've influenced uh films in the coming in the following years and story wise and how stories put together and i and characters i think also can be influenced and in, and in, in future works and i think that was a certain part of american graffiti uh and um the the aesthetic of the film mm-hmm. really really i think shown through the film cuz i mean there's a lot of neon yeah a lot of color in the film yeah. while simultaneously being really dark well and so it's that's the thing so they wanted to film in modesto and mm-hmm. they filmed in a, in a in a couple of different locations they i think most of the time they spent filming in petaluma california which a lot of people know today as the home of the twit network with uh, mm-hmm. leo laporte uh but they originally started out filming in 
Oh, where the crap was it? I know Petaluma was the was the main town, but they started in doing in uh, San Rafael. Mm-hmm. They did one night in San Rafael, and their production got shut down by the city council because the the barkeepers were saying, "Hey, this is this traffic is keeping people patrons from getting uh, to my bar, and we're yeah. losing ba- uh, business." So they're just like, "I'm sorry, you guys have to leave." Weird. And so then they moved to Modesto and um, and Petaluma, um, just north of San Rafael, to do most of the shooting. Thing was, you're driving a lot of this stuff is cars driving up and down streets and you're not doing rear projection. You're not Mm -hmm. doing green screen. You're actually getting out there with everything and you can't be dry. I mean, it's going to look very fake if you have, you know, a a two ton truck with a a nine bank of one K's blasting light (laughs) into the dark night. And this was shot at night. And so they needed to come up with ways to to shoot. And so Lucas went to. um who was it? Uh, Wexler, I think is his name. Um, do, 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 do. I want to say it's, his last name is Wexler. Yeah, Wexler is uh, uh, Haskell Wexler is an American cinematographer and uh, probably one of the more influential cinematographers he did. He did night and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, and he also helped Lucas develop a system um, to shoot all of these car shots in a very small package because one of the problems that they had was getting the cars, the the cameras mounted onto the cars, and you've taken the. Have you? Did you ever take intensive video production with me? Uh, did did no, you take the class where no. we mounted the cameras to the cars? No, I never mounted. Okay, so never mount. it's a pain in the butt to mount. Now, sure. uh, granted, today you've got one little suction cup and a GoPro, yeah. and you can you know put cameras all over your car. But you're talking about a 35 millimeter um, camera that you're going to have to carry around. So he yeah. and Wexler came up with this idea that when they're shooting. They open that iris up a lot and they're using a very fast film. That's why it looks very grainy mm-hmm. in the uh, in the shots that are the cruising scenes. Um, but then they were able to use two cameras and all the dialogue stuff so that they could shoot very quickly. And um, it does create a very unique aesthetic when you're using that natural light in that film. And it and because of the grain, it feels more raw. And yeah. a lot of people have compared this to um, documentary. It's almost like a documentary of yeah, sure. the last night of these yeah. friends. Which I think is also very fascinating because it does come off that way. Yeah. So you're right. It does yeah, have a very definitely. interesting aesthetic. Yeah, it is interesting because if we shot it, if we shot this movie nowadays and you're shooting on uh, like a Red or a Alexia, or, or if you're mm-hmm. shooting me on like a, a Canon uh, US Cinema or like a 60D or a 5D or something, uh, those are those those cameras are designed to shoot fairly well in low light situations. Yes. So you mm-hmm. would, you would get a different aesthetic and you could uh, i mean with like ribbon lights and stuff you could really pump a lot of light into the cars and you'd get a completely different look but see i don't film but that's the thing they could have pumped a lot of light in the cars now when you're watching a bob falfa harrison ford Mm -hmm. when he's driving in his car or when john's driving in his car you can tell they've got lights in the dashboard illuminating their faces but they're not trying to light you know put a light in the back seat that shows the upholstery of the back seat let's just see their faces Mm -hmm. and let's leave it at that Matthew, you want to jump Which in on anything? Pretty yeah. Well, and I would I would say that as someone who has studied film and who has been out of the film and television business for about 15 years, I'm catching about 50% of what you're saying. So I think a lot of the lay people in the audience are just hearing wah, 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 Harrison Ford. But you, <laughs> you are making really important points here because if you look at the way this film feels not only does it feel like a documentary it doesn't feel like it's shot on 35 millimeter film no and it was actually i'm trying to find it here um he used 
uh, system called Technoscope, which was a, mm-hmm. an inexpensive way of shooting 35 millimeter film and using only half of the uh, of the film frame, which gave the format uh, a resemblance to 16 millimeter, but gave you a widescreen look. Interesting. So, so yeah, it's huh. it gives you, it, it it feels like it could be that you know that cinemascope, mm-hmm. but it's not, and it's, right, right. it you know it feels kind of like you know almost like the the film strips. Yes. You, did you have, mm-hmm. you ever watch those when you were a kid, Stephen? Yeah, the yeah. film strips, the Disney films that we'd yeah, watch yeah. in school, mm-hmm. which adds to that immediacy. And I think that you know, visually speaking, half of the reason. And I say this, and I, I believe that this is true. I'm not you know just speaking out my butt. Half of the reason this film feels so immediate, and the reason that it's lasted so long, is because exactly of that perspective. What they do on this film feels like you're getting that peek into a real person's life. Yes. And that's that's kind of amazing, especially, you know, this is in that, that 70s period where lots of people were experimenting and the movies were getting, mm-hmm. you know, this came out, didn't it come out the same year as Bonnie Se- and Clyde? 70, it 70, it came out the same year that The Sting came out because it lost uh, Academy Award to, to The Sting, which ah, we've all already yeah, talked about. Um, it came out in 70, what? I want to say 73, but... Um, what year was Bonnie and Clyde? I want to say 68, 68, something like that. 68. Oh, yeah. so it was earlier. Yeah. yeah. It was a little bit earlier. Yeah. The other cool. thing that's interesting is this is the first time I've watched it in high definition. Mm-hmm. I've either watched it before on VHS or regular DVD or broadcast television. <laughs> and so never got to see it in the theater. Of course, I was too young. Right. Um, but, well, I, I remember when this was would come out on television. Mm-hmm. I would be at like my grandparents' house on a summer night and my mom and dad wanted to go out and do something. And so they just dropped me off at my grandparents' house and I'd hang out with them. And I just remember watching this. I must have watched American Graffiti about two or three different times at their house while my mom and dad were out on date night or whatever that they were uh-huh. doing. And I, so I have this really weird memory of it being summertime and windows open and it being very, you know, that kind of quiet time of the night where the neighborhood is quiet and you hear the dogs barking yeah. and all of that and the crickets doing their thing and then watching American <laughs> Graffiti on my grandparents, you know, 27-inch big console television set <laughs> and just being amazed by it and being taken by the music and just being taken by everything and always right at the last minute, right as the um, right as Richard Dreyfuss's character is flying away, my parents coming and picking me up and, okay, it's time to go home. And I'm always missing out on the, <laughs> you know, the little uh, placards, read. the yeah. the uh, end result of what happened uh, to all the characters. So, yeah, this that, that's an interesting thing when I think about it, because I watched it today and it was like 90 degrees out. Yeah, and yeah. so if, if, if when, I, when you say that you, you have this vivid memory of you watch this movie and your surroundings almost kind of re- reflected the mm-hmm. climate that it was in. Uh, that's interesting because this, I, now that I think about it, this would not be a fun movie to watch in the winter, I don't think. No, I then, don't, you, then you couldn't go and drive with yeah, your yeah, friends, yeah. really, because you're and in your bunker because it's freezing. But again, first time I've seen it in high def, so the, the, there's a huge visual difference between the stage stuff like that you see at Mel's Diner and, at mm-hmm. the, and, um, uh, and out in front of the – when they're dealing with the pharaohs and then this grittier looking oh, yeah. street view stuff. And it it, you're, it yeah. is a very interesting look. Lots and lots of light, lots of color. It's uh, visually, it is very pretty. Mm-hmm. And shot by Lucas, and shot by another guy. They didn't really have formal training, and Wexler came in and showed really? him how to do some things and different ways to to shoot it. But um, that's about it. That's amazing. Yeah. What do you think about the story? I think the story is interesting. I like the the vignette kind of thing where we jump 
back and forth between um, like three different storylines, essentially mm-hmm. four four, four mm-hmm. storylines. Uh, I li- I like that because I mean, and I didn't know going into this this was a like a one night kind of thing. I I remembered it vaguely, and then you get it a little bit like oh this is just like over one over one night, right? And so the vignette is an interesting way to tell multiple stories uh, coherently. Especially when you have that one single thread kind of mm-hmm. through them, and I think the thread in this was the streets, mm-hmm. the diner, and the radio. Right. And so when you put all those together, yeah, the story was very enjoyable from that because you kind of see things bouncing around mm-hmm. and get story development in an interesting way. Uh, unlike a movie that is one uh, linear story, right. where you watch one character or multiple characters um, have an, an arc. And this, we have to bounce around between characters, and you can delay someone's uh, an arc by mm-hmm. jumping to someone else's story. Mm-hmm. And that's very interesting, because how do you, the, the the process of building tension in one story and immediately deflating it almost by jumping to someone else's story or mm-hmm. making the stories cross paths, uh, it's just a very interesting story aspect. Well, you know, there's an interesting part, you know, where... Um Toad and in the, in the, in his in his girl that he picks up yeah. are are going to have sex. Right. And you cut away to something else, and then it's a long time before you cut back to them finishing up and, and uh, moving on their way and mm-hmm. running into, you know, other people right. along the way. And it's at that slow part of the night, you know, that 2 a.m., 3 a.m. time period where nothing's really going on. And so it is very interesting that you can cut away to these stories. I think Lucas originally wanted to follow a very repeating pattern of telling the story. So you'd follow okay. character A, then character B, then character C, then character D, then back to A, B, C, D, A, B, C, mm-hmm. D, A, B, C, D. It didn't work out that way in the edit. And certainly no. when they started putting changes um, that the studio suggested, it kind of fell apart that way. But you can kind of start to see that pattern start to develop in there. So that's a really good observation interesting, interesting. there. Uh, the, 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 the time aspect was interesting to me uh, because you in in our part of the country, in our part of the world – uh, DJs, they're off the air at like 11 some nights. Friday nights, when I was in junior high and high school, you get the DJ on to maybe midnight, usually about 11. And so when you have Jyphus's character walking to the DJ station, I'm yeah. thinking, oh, it's probably about 11, 11.30. And I see a clock in the wall, it says almost 5. I was like, whoa, you yeah, guys yeah. did something wrong. And then I realized... No, it's actually yeah. five in the morning, and, and you know, the, whole, the whole town's still bumping. There, there was a time, Zach, before you were born, <laughs> that that radio stations actually did operate twenty four seven. Now, some smaller towns would actually turn and, off at midnight. Weird, but there would yep. be sometimes, and some people like me yeah. and Matthew maybe too, where Hello. we would work overnight shifts. So we would work from midnight we'd, until we'd six a.m. Oh, no way. Um, there because were a lot of times you couldn't automate to the computer. Yeah, we didn't have computer uh, automated there was no systems. Computer. I think an automated system didn't come into the station I was working at until I want to say like ninety three ish, ninety four ish, maybe. And when that started happening, and it was just like, okay, there's no need for overnight people anymore. But it would it was not uncommon for me to go into work on Saturday at around eight o'clock. Um, and because of that time you were still playing top 40 and, and, uh, the Beatles archive mm-hmm. stuff off of a CD, you didn't have anything to do. So they made you clean the offices for, for, for four hours. But then from midnight to 6 AM, you were on the air. And so, you know, we were broadcasting that thing and it's interesting. I, I was expecting you to say that you would go out and cruise because, you know, apparently when this movie came out, cruising was not a very big deal, but in the Midwest or in the, in, in, oh. in the central parts of the United States, 
I remember in high school, that was the thing to do. You, oh, drove, we did it. you drove to Ottawa, 10 miles away, mm-hmm. and you drove this circuit up and yeah. down, and you talked with people, and Driving. you did everything that you see in this mm-hmm. movie. Oh, no, we did that all the time. Okay, because, again, when I was in, in college, and this kind of goes into the, uh, to the sound part uh, of this movie, um, I remember walking from one end of the building to the other end, which was at the, the street, and, and um, here in Hayes, the route used to be, you know where JD's Chicken is? Yeah. That used to be the Sonic. Yep. That used to be where Sonic okay. is. Okay, okay. So you would go from the courthouse, that police parking lot across the street from the Fox, you'd mm-hmm. turn around in there. You'd cruise down Main all the way to 8th Street. You'd go down 8th Street to the uh, to the Sonic Drive-In, and you'd yeah. do a, a loop there, okay. and that was your loop. Yeah. And it was like 10 or 15 minutes to do that entire mm-hmm. entire loop. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that was one of the problems that John was complaining about, is that you couldn't go out and cruise. Yeah. But I could go out to that front door and open it up and see the kids driving around, and everybody had it on one the same station. Yeah. And it was really kind of magical, because you could sit there... And you could hear either if you pre-recorded something that was playing out, you could hear yourself coming out of all these cars. You could hear the song that you were playing coming out of all these cars and you could hear it echo and bounce off of the walls of the buildings, off the sides of the buildings and just kind of echo and fill that entire space. So, again, you're talking about a kind of a magical, a magical memory where you just have this very diffuse kind of sound coming in from all angles and from all places And everybody's all taking part of that same experience and driving up and down. And I know that sounds very, I know for some listeners, it may just seem very archaic and it may seem (laughs) very uh, um, quaint and and very, I don't know. I did it and it seems archaic. (laughs) I know, but there's something fun about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what we, well, one, in Quinter, there's nothing to do uh, ever since I lived there. There's nothing like (laughs) open past nine. A gas station, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so you drove, you just drove around and drove a loop and we listened uh, to whatever music yeah. we wanted to listen to. Uh, we got into trouble a lot by playing stupid games in our cars. Uh, but that's seriously, that, that's what we did. There was a loop and corner and we did that all the time. And it's weird because we, no one, I don't think anyone ever does that in Hayes now. <laughs> no, I nobody think, does. I don't think nobody nobody you're allowed now. to. No, the, in fact, they yeah. curtail it. I mean, when they started backing off curfews to like, first it was midnight, then it was 11, yeah. and then it was 10. And I was at like nine, 10 o'clock now is the nine, curfew. 10. Man, what a, what a rip for yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah well, that, that blew my mind when I moved to Hayes. Well, and like, we have a curfew. We a curfew, like over the whole city. Yeah. <laughs> what are you saying, Matthew? We, we used to drive the, the circuit between the 24 hour store and the park and then you'd come back and forth but then the entire town would would basically they roll up the streets at 10 o'clock those were the only two places you could get into yeah but i think it is important to remember that the kids today can be social without having to see one another yeah well, that's and, true. And I think, they don't know, have to leave the house you can go and hang out with your friends on the entire web with with the skype and the chat roulette and all that yeah and you definitely you can definitely get on onto the chat or the you can instant message. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with gas prices the way they are, oh, you're not God. you're not paying. You know, I remember at a time where <laughs> and I've told this story before I could get twenty dollars for mowing grass. I could take my truck, drive it to Topeka, go to one comic book store, buy a couple of comics, go to another comic book store in Topeka, buy some comics, get on the road, the interstate to Lawrence, go to a comic book st- store there, buy some <laughs> comics fill up my tank with gas and still have enough money for a hamburger, french fries and a drink and drive home all on $20. Nuts. 
you can't do that today. No. I mean, you Came know, my car, yes, I don't believe. <laughs> no, seriously. This was 75 Comics cents a comic. 75 cents. 75 man. cents, man. So I could go and I could buy, you know, $5 worth of Four comics. Cups. I could go buy $5 worth of comics. $10 worth of comics. Hamburgers are a buck or yes. less. Gas was 25 Gas was cents a gallon. Well, 89 cents. I remember that in like 95, 96 in Atlanta, yeah. 89 cents. We're talking 50 cents a gallon. So I could fill up and drive a long ways and do a lot. And there was that social aspect. You didn't have cell phones. You didn't have, yeah. you know, if you wanted to go hang out with the kids, you had to go somewhere where the kids were hanging out. You had to go where your peers were. And that was the park. That was cruising. That was the Dairy Queen. That was the Sonic. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. There was something special about that, that, that Matthew, you're right. Something is lost now. There's also a weird well, thing. There's also a weird thing where kids you, just don't want to drive anymore. That, that's certainly a thing. Well, and it's not the same experience and it's not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily lesser, but it's not the same experience driving because when I bought my first car, my first car was this enormous red piece of junk. But it was enormous, and you could fit 19 people in the thing. And, you know, a, a, one of my associates just bought herself a brand new car. You can barely fit me in it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it is a different experience. It's an entirely different world. And even in the day when we were doing what we were doing, because I'm going to tell you a story, Stephen. I did not watch American Graffiti first. Before I ever watched American Graffiti in the 1980s, I saw The Hollywood Nights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you seen uh, The Hollywood Mm -hmm. Nights? Yes. Uh Which is basically American graffiti set about a year later. It's the sex comedy. It's the sex comedy. Yes. And it is fascinating because I watched The Hollywood Nights first, and then I watched American Graffiti. And, you know, being the the cad that I was and the young bounder, I'm like, man, this just a ripoff of The Hollywood Nights. (laughs) But even just a few years later, from 73 to 19, what, maybe 1980? Yeah. Not even 10 years later, that experience felt entirely different. And they were telling a story that was entirely different. Mm -hmm. By the time that I started actually doing the cruise in 1986, 87, again, it felt entirely different. So I Mm -hmm. think it's something where the cruising experience is probably gone, with the exception of people who specifically go out in the car clubs here in town. We'll have Saturday night cruising nights, and they'll sure. bring out their, yeah. you know, their classic American graffiti type cars. Yes. And do mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. that's mostly people your age and my age and older who grew up doing it. Yeah, yeah, you don't see much of that anymore, which is which is sad. Uh, and again, it depends on where you, where you, where you go. Um, True. Jump back to the cruising experience, going out and hearing the radio station echo because everybody was yeah, on yeah, that. Yeah. That actually played a key role in developing this world sound that's encompassed in American Graffiti, which is a very unique sound. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't pioneered in American Graffiti, but that's where most people knew it from because the film that did it first was um, um, Orson Welles' A Touch of Evil. But that movie was hardly uh, released had a limited time and was shelved. Okay. But essentially what happened was that they were wanting to take Wolfman Jack and his program and have that kind of be, as you mentioned before, this backbone yeah. throughout the entire movie. But they wanted the sound to not just sound like it was coming from the immediate car speaker in front of where the audience was. They wanted it to echo and bounce and do all these things. So George Lucas hired Walter Murch. Most people know Walter Murch today as an editor, an Academy Award winning 
um, film editor for like mm-hmm. Cold Mountain and some other things. Um, but originally he was an audio editor. Yeah. And he and Lucas came in and they took Wolfman Jack's entire two hour long program that runs throughout the movie. And they went um, to some parking lots in different places and they basically had a tape deck playing back that show through a loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end of the court, they had a microphone attached to another recorder and those two were synced so that they were playing back at a constant speed. And then what would happen is March would sometimes take the microphone and move it closer to that speaker and sometimes farther away. And sometimes Lucas would take the speaker and turn it off axis left or right or up and down and bounce it all around. And that's why when you're listening to the songs and the music and everything in there, it has this weird echo and vibe Mm -hmm. and it actually sounds like the music is coming from all over the place. And if you've, if you've been in an experience like I have where you listen to cars driving by and they're all doing that same thing and it's all bouncing around, it seems very, very real. Yeah. Now when they did it with touch of evil, um, all they did was they just took the speaker and they bounced it off of uh, an alley wall behind the studio and, and recorded it mm-hmm. the same way. But merch was like, well, how can we move this all around? And the process is called worldizing um, is what it, cause it sounds like you're in the world sure. uh, that the sound is in the world. And it's uh it's a cool technique that I have not seen people do. I certainly in a 5.1 surround kind of environment, you can move the uh, sound oh, yeah. all around, but I don't really see people do that as much anymore. Yeah. It's, it adds an interesting, uh, uh, audio aesthetic to the, the film, which is something, uh, that isn't utilized as much. I mean, yeah. there are certainly, uh, well-crafted audio things. And really when we, t- when like you watch the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. you talk about, sound editing now yeah it's generally huge big crash sequences right, right, I mean, like right. gravity one sound editing and yeah. not to dis not to dismiss gravity as uh well sound editing but uh the sound editing they're doing is is, is certainly different than what they did in american graffiti oh sure like they, they used it to uh like put people into the world which again everything does um but it just kind of enhanced the feeling of this time and the era that the story is taking place in and as a person who didn't grow up there, that is an inter- an interesting thing because that the world of American graffiti is not in a world uh, I am anyway accustomed to besides being a teenager and doing weird stuff. For me, and this is I mean, some people may get this. I don't I don't know a lot about music because growing up, um, my parents usually kept it on the classical radio station because that's what my dad liked to listen to. So up until about probably 1980 or so, most of my music experience and knowledge was all based on what we know today is classical music, NPR mm-hmm. uh, type stuff. So you could, back in the day, you could ask me anything about, you know, the three B's, Brahms, Beethoven, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> Bach. And I could, <laughs> boobies. And I could tell you all sorts of things about that. Knew it in and out and could tell, tell just by the first couple of notes who this was, what movement, et cetera. Um, and then I, I never listened to music of the 70s and 80s that we traditionally know, mm-hmm. because then I immediately jumped from, classical music into and probably because of american graffiti into at that time classic rock i think what's today it's called or today it's called oldies but then it was you know classic rock and roll and so i was into johnny be good and i was into little you know little richard basically everybody featured in the american graffiti uh soundtrack i knew Mm -hmm. uh and that's what i listened to all through i don't know the early nineties probably wow. is just, cla- you know, classic rock today's oldies music. Um, so I, I kind of skipped over all of the seventies and eighties stuff. Um, and only wasn't until 
I don't know, probably the early 2000s that I really started paying attention to. What was all this music of the 70s? So, you know, I'm still <laughs> catching up. So when you and Rodrigo are making fun of me because I don't know, you know, who all these new upcoming uh, hip yeah. kid bands are, um, it's because, you know, I'm still I'm still stuck in the 90s. I can't wait until you go through your boy band stage. Oh, boy. Man, that would be exciting. I, yeah, my sister went through that. I'll, I'll pass. <laughs> you do understand that Zach makes up 50% of those band names to troll you, right? No, I have never made up a band name to troll anyone unless it's like listen let's make to up, him let's stammer make up, let's make he up band names we, we've done let's make up band names before but if you ever ask hey zach well pick a band we'll 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 see if amazon has it on vinyl never made up a band all real stuff there's a movie soundtrack just recently came out on vinyl i was really surprised it's like at walmart or something where it's on they yeah, released the soundtrack they released the soundtrack on vinyl in a special edition i was like well, Zach would be interested in that. Uh, there, vinyl is a weird thing. There's always this niche group of uh, stuff that's putting out on vinyl. I mean, you have weird bands that are putting stuff out on cassette tapes. Yeah, I'm I mean, not, not into works. that, but uh, yeah, vinyl's vinyl's still a thing. It's good. The music licensing for this movie, people people passed on this mostly because they didn't want to deal with the music licensing. Because uh, as George Lucas was writing the script, he would put at the top of every page of the script what song he was thinking about or what song he envisioned playing in this scene. So if mm-hmm. it was green onions at the top of the screen, there's green onions and um, no studio would touch it. Cause they're like the licensing of this music is going to be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Finally, when universal said that they would do the movie, um, they said, okay, here's the way we're going to get around it. We're going to just play, pay a flat rate per song to the, the music companies. And that's it. And if you don't like it, then fine. We won't use your song. We'll use something else. And so most people bought into it except for one person, Elvis Presley. Uh, And people, when you think of 1962, you're like, well, Elvis should be all over the place. No Elvis music because, uh, what's his name? Colonel, uh, what is it? it? Colonel Parker. Colonel Tom Parker. Yeah. He was like, nope, it's got to be $90,000 a song. And they're like, sorry, we've got a, we've got a very specific budget of, uh, I think the final budget was like $777,000. Seven hundred and seventy-seven thousand seven hundred and seventy-seven dollars and seventy-seven cents. It's what like the heck. I don't know where that. I don't know if that's true or not. That's but weird. I know that they had budgeted like seven hundred and ninety thousand and not a penny more. <laughs> okay. Because Universal was into because of the uh, because of the success of Easy Rider, um, studios were like, well, we should have these young kids go out and do really independent films for really low budget and let them have the creative control and then come back and, and do all this stuff. And they certainly saw that with Lucas. Um, of course, there was some financial stuff to get the other 250000 That's why Coppola came on board. But the uh, studio wanted Final Cut, and Lucas didn't want to have any of that. Well, they ended up removing four scenes. Lucas uh, is a tr- tr- I mean, if you go back and read, Lucas is a huge control freak on this movie really? specifically. And again, probably because it was very personal to him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what helped save this movie. Because if it had turned into Hollywood Nights, Hollywood Nights, Matthew's fine movie. But if this movie oh, yes. had turned into Hollywood yes. Nights, it would not have been the... It, the yeah, it would not be. Better. Yeah. And th- that was something I was aware of while watching this, thinking, especially when I made the comparison to Superbad at one point, I was like, uh, oh, yeah. a, a teenage coming-of-age movie now would not do these things. Well, one, uh, because that's not the kind of time we live in anymore, and, um, and the times have changed. Yeah, but you go to the house party, though. Sure, uh, but what I'm saying is, yeah. uh, it's that's not, a different movie. That's kid th- and play. This, <laughs> this movie, uh, while there is allusions to sex and sex talked about, 
Uh, there's no nudity in the film. There's nope. very little adult language. Uh, but in today's coming-of-age movies, that certainly are, are, are prevalent themes throughout. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's bad or it should be done by another. It's just interesting how our coming-of-age movies have developed over the decades. I mean, uh, this is not uh, The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. They're, they're totally different. And uh, the characters are different. Yeah. And and uh, what's a coming age movie now? I guess Superbad kind of. Yeah, Superbad is coming Super of age. American Pie. Several. American Pie American is a coming Pie. of age. It's a little bit older. But yeah, yeah, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Superbad is maybe the most. I, what's I, something? I, I'm trying to think of a coming of age. Let's just look it up here on the IMDb. Um, coming of age. Maybe you're uh, something with Michael Sarah in it. Oh, what's the one that's coming out this weekend? Neighbors. Neighbors, isn't no, that? No, a- those. Everyone's in college in that movie, and married married people. Uh, Michael Sarah. What is he, what has he done recently? Juno. Uh, oh, that's even old. That's the even that's super two, bad. Like the four or something. Uh, I don't know. That's interesting. Maybe there's not. Oh, maybe that. Maybe Wikipedia. That you're, you're so crazy. What do they say? What Harry Potter say? is a coming of age movie. Bull crap. Well, it's not in this. Well, not in this. No. Not in this. Not in this no. style. In the broader. Wikipedia is open source, and people yeah, yeah. have different yeah, definitions. Is. I don't know. You know, you that's look. interesting. Maybe someone else will have an idea in the comments. HuffPo has like the twenty-five best coming-of-age uh, stories. Well, don't listen to the HuffPo either. Stand by me, coming-of-age story. That's not recent. It no. definitely is. Not recent. No, though. it definitely not is. Stand by, you think I'm not saying it's recent. I'm saying it oh. is a coming of age. Oh, no, story. I'm fine with that. It's not recent, though. Okay. Um, Dazed and Confused. I thought Stephen was, was poo-pooing it. Dazed and Confused is American Graffiti circa yes, 1993. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It totally is. That's why I said John was the uh, was the all right, all right, all right uh, character. All right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We already did reference that. Yeah. Yeah. Ha-ha! Man, I don't know. Maybe um, coming age movies. Your, your, I am old because I'm like, what about that? Uh, <laughs> oh, there isn't. Uh, there is Robin a new Williams one. Dead poets society. I have not watched uh, the Perks of Being a Wallflower yet, but that's a coming oh, of age okay, movie. Yeah, have you yeah. watched that? One? I have. That is a good movie. Is it a good movie? That's yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, um, yeah. That was that would be totally a thing. And I guess I I don't know anything about the book. I know that, but the Fault in Our Stars maybe coming of age story. I have mm-hmm. no idea. Uh, Perks of Being Wallflower, yeah, coming of age story. Nice, nice one. And it's from this decade. Yeah, it is. And it only took us 15 minutes. It was only like last year, two years ago. (laughs) So here's, um, so obviously, (laughs) you know, Lucas wanted to edit the film himself, but he got, uh, the studio said, no, we're going to make, we're going to make Mother Hubbard uh, come in and and edit um, Verna Verna Fields. Mm -hmm. Come in and edit. She had uh, previously edited Steven Spielberg's Sugarland Express. She would go on to edit basically everything Spielberg would do, um, including Jaws. Um, she came in and did the first pass. Then Lucas's then wife, um, Marsha Lucas, uh, did a second pass on it uh, hmm. to get it all edited in. They had to take out a couple of things for the studio, but $775,000, what it cost to make, opened up in the theaters. And the studios, when they first looked at it, it was like, this is a made for TV movie. I mean, there's no way that we're going to release this in theaters and they were gearing this thing up to be in the theaters. And then a couple of early releases got out and people around the studio started talking and that started generating a lot of buzz around Hollywood. And the studios were like, okay, hold on just a second. This, um, tell you what we're going to do, George Lucas, (laughs) 
we're going to put this in a few theaters here in Los Angeles and a few theaters in New York, mm-hmm. and we're just going to run it there. And it blew up big, and then they had to do a wide release, and it became this popular movie. Something like $218 million is what the movie has earned today. Wow. One of the most profitable movies of all time um, as far as a cost to to profit ratio. Less than a million to make, $220 million plus dollars in the back end. Um, Coppola, when the studios were like, we're going to make this a TV movie. Coppola's like, uh, no, you're not going to make this a TV movie. <laughs> I will write you a check for the $775,000 and buy it from you outright. Um, Luke, uh, which would have made if he, if he would have done that, if the studios would have done that, it would have made him an instant $30 million off of that check. And I guess today <laughs> Coppola still kicks himself for not, not forcing that. that issue even, That's even funny. further. Um, but the upshot of this was it was so popular it was up for a number of awards. It got Lucas instant recognition. Lucas took like $300,000 of his own money that he got paid for the, for the movie and set it aside for the space adventure fantasy that he was going to work on. And because of his popularity from American graffiti and the money that he made from this, he was then able to go on and start to work on star Wars mm-hmm. as his, as his next project. And of course we all know where star Wars went on. Yeah. That's right. The star Wars holiday special. Wherein B. Arthur runs a cantina and Lumpy and Itchy celebrate Life Day. The so I pinnacle think that, of the Star Wars trilogy. I, I don't know. I think the thing that you need to take out of the, all of this, Zach, about mm-hmm. American Graffiti is be passionate about what you know and try to write a story about your life experience. And who knows? Maybe it'll take you so far as to uh, create the next billion dollar film industry. In the form of Star Wars. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't be upset about that. It may also launch the careers of people like Richard Dreyfuss, who we would see oh for years later. Gosh, did I love him. Launch the, well, it wouldn't launch the career of Ron Howard, but it would move Ron Keep Howard going. from a child actor to a teen actor. Mm-hmm. Harrison Ford, of course, this was his first movie. He turned 30 during the filming of the movie. We have watched, I have watched more Which films with yes. Harrison Ford in it, in this series of Zach on film, than yeah, I yeah. ever knew Steven, he was ever, I didn't even know he's in this many movies. Steven we probably watched, movies, how many Steven films have we watched? I don't Harrison. pick the movies, they four, were on the list. Four, probably, probably in the last four, four movies, movies he pops up. I forgot that four he was in five. Apocalypse Now. The Conversation now. is in this. Yeah. Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. I think there's something else. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Harrison oh, we, Ford's we in a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's crazy. And we are all he was in something. Cindy Williams was in this. Oh, uh, who could forget yes. uh, uh, Phillips? Uh, what's her name? Uh, I say we, who could forget McKenzie her? Phillips. McKenzie Phillips. McKenzie Phillips. <laughs> all at twelve years the, old. She had to be. She had to have um, one of the producers of the film become her legal guardian during the filming oh. of this movie she could, oh, so that she could work night. yeah because yeah, she was she was underage you yeah. couldn't work she was 12 13 years old she so um i think when i say gary marshall had to become her guardian because who knows what uh what her dad was doing well well everybody knows what her dad was doing her yes. dad was john phillips of the yes moms of the, of the papas and they were touring I mean, around it, it is well documented what his what her dad was doing yes he was doing pretty much everything he could get his hands on pretty much <laughs> but yeah and it's a it's a sad story but it's interesting to me that in this story where you have teenagers being played by 30 year old harrison ford that you have a kid who i pictured you know i'm like 14 15 teeny bopper being played by an actress so young and being played convincingly by an actress who's 12 years old 
you know, pulling off seeming 14 or 15, yeah. which mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. is kind of the point of is to try and seem older than you really are. Well, and even, uh, I, you know, I was watching again before Zach came over. Cindy Williams looks super, mm-hmm. super young in this. I mean, super young in this. Yeah. And she's like, uh, what, 23? I don't remember how old she was in this. She wanted to play a McKinsey Phillips uh, uh, role, but they, she was like, oh, I'll put on braces and do all this. They're like, nope, you're going to be the, you're going to be the, uh, the girlfriend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, have you, though. Have you ever watched? Go ahead. Have I ever watched what? You ever watched? More, more American movies. I have, which was just okay. I didn't like it as much. Um, yeah, this is this is you know. So it was subtitled "Back to the Well," Electric Boogaloo. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, what's interesting is this movie was so popular that I think it did kind of kick off a resurgence of cruising music of the fifties and sixties. Uh, it also kind of led to another to a TV series that came out in 1974 called happy days that featured a young Ron Howard as a kid growing up in the fifties, which then spun off Laverne and Shirley. Yep. And then featuring a not as young Cindy, Cindy Williams. Yep. And Joni loves Chachi. And then eventually, and and eventually they did the happy days gang, which was (laughs) the animated adventures of Richie and, and mouth and, and, and Fonz traveling through time with a talking dog and an alien named Cupcake. Oh, which Mork and Mindy did spin out of uh, Happy Days as well. And then eventually yes, we got did. to Three's Company with Suzanne Somers as the blonde and the T-Bird. Everybody in this movie got to be on ABC television. On Everybody Friday. in this movie <laughs> became big, big names, except maybe Paul Lamatt, who did the, who played John Miller. I don't remember what he went on to do. What Charles, else did he play in? Well, let's take a look. I feel like I know Paul Lamatt from something. Um, but da, 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 uh, let's see. The most recent thing he has done is 2009, a show called Chrome Angels. He also did a movie called The Long Shot in 2004. Beyond Belief Factor Fiction in 2000. American History X was probably <laughs> the last big thing that he was in. Oh, that's in 1998. He was also in Lonesome Dove and some other stuff. Uh, Charles Martin you know, Smith, who played Toad. Uh, man, he's in, he's in all sorts of stuff. Uh, he's a very recognized, yeah, he, was in, uh, he was in, he's been in Fringe, in, uh, the TV Close series. Encounters? No, that That's you're thinking nice. of somebody else. Um, let's see. What's the last big movie that he was in? Uh, left behind world at war family law, Ally McBeal who's an Ally McBeal dead heat Da Vinci's city, ha- uh, city hall, lucky you. He's a, he's a very recognizable face today as an older person. Oh, yeah. Um, he's he's in, one of those big, hey, it's that guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course, Mackenzie Phillips went on to do, uh, uh, what's it? This is it. Uh, bah, bah, bah. The hell was that TV show that she was in in oh, the man. 80s? Who? Mackenzie Phillips. Who's that? Mackenzie Phillips. She was in One Day at a Time. Yeah, One Day at a Time. That's what I'm thinking of. And of uh, Cindy Williams, Harrison Ford. Wolfman Jack. More and more and more and more and more people. A lot of people. <laughs> Wolfman of Jack people. went on to continue <laughs> being <laughs> Wolfman <laughs> Jack. Maybe if you got the curves, I got the angles. Whoa there. So you we're going to take away from this, Man. besides what I what I told you you should take away from this, Zach. Um, and my awesome Wolfman Jack impersonation. That was, that was, that was very nice. What I'm going to take away from this is, I th- I mean... I like the vignette story. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 
and that idea of just building a story through smaller stories that are all interconnected and how to set it up. Because they set it up, you have to set it up so well mm-hmm. in the beginning to kind of start branching everyone out to right. go on their separate paths. Because they all meet up at the same place. And for mm-hmm. the first 10 minutes, there are, everyone's in the same uh, locale. And then they all go do their whole thing and they kind of cross paths every once in a while, possibly, or they kind of just stay, stay the course. Um, and then they all group together at the end for about, I mean, 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. And that, and that was an interesting, uh, storytelling aspect, which, uh, could probably be flubbed very easily. But, uh, um, I think if you nail it, I think it's, it's, it's very nice. Okay. Well, hopefully you'll use that some, yeah. somehow, some oh, way, shape someday. or form. Hopefully soon, Zach. Somehow. <laughs> We've done this whole series, and we want you to be a better filmmaker. Yeah, me too. And hopefully American Graffiti has uh, has done that for you. Yeah. Uh, let's give but a shout out to our- When you're super famous, you have to mention the song. Yeah. Let's, well, let's shout out to our associate producers right now, who are Ethan Boyd, Craig Bergman, Aaron Barnes, Tony Jacobson, Dominic LaFord, Fisher Millard, Christopher Singer, Ramiro Barrera Palma. Jeffrey Domingo, Jimmy Dunn, Hannah Jones, Douglas Hopkins, Nathan Olson, Steve Jokus, what I don't know how to pronounce that. Jorge M. Taronji. Taranji. Taranji. Dang. Kind of flubbed Jorge it up to the end. Uh, thank you everyone for donating to Major Spoilers and keep us going week after week. And look at that, we are out of time. We are done here at Zach on Film for this week. Make sure to head over to Majorspoilers.com where you can find the podcast posting page. And give your thoughts about American Graffiti and maybe some of what you think are some recent coming-of-age films in the last decade. Uh, some things that we missed. Uh, give your thoughts about the rest of the episode. While you're there, click on the Amazon.com link. And you can buy your own copy of American Graffiti or anything else. Anything you'd normally buy on Amazon.com. Click on that link. It's not going to cost you any extra. But just a little bit will come back to us to keep us going more and more and more. And giving you more content each and every week. And so next week, we will be looking at the film Amadeus on Zach on Film. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.